For the next few minutes here on WGTD, I am so pleased to be able to speak with author Chris Ballard, who uh, actually is uh, someone who has uh, written extensively for Sports Illustrated magazine, uh, for a number of other publications, the author of Hoops Nation, a wonderful uh, a book from uh, several years back, the author now of a very intriguing book called The Butterfly Hunter, Adventures of People Who Found Their True Calling Way Off the Beaten Track. The book is published by Broadway Books. And, and in it, uh, Chris Ballard speaks with a number of different people who work in uh, vocations that uh, we might not even imagine exist uh, or, or, or work in, in ways that, that just might be intriguing for all kinds of different reasons. It is a wonderful book. It really gives us a lot to think about. And uh, Chris Ballard, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. One of the things that uh, you mentioned at some point is that you yourself, over the course of your life, have had more than a few oddball jobs and, uh, and have experienced a few moments in your life when you kind of wondered uh, what it is uh, to, to, to feel a calling to one's work. Tell us just a little bit about that and, and uh, how that maybe helped you in the writing of this book. Yeah, I think I was uh, one of those kids who, who growing up, uh, yeah, I never, uh, never quite latched onto the idea of you know choosing your major early, or, or I didn't have some flash of vision when I was uh, you know 13 years old, and I'm going to be a you know a carpenter, a lawyer, and and uh, so I, I was sort of drawn to these different jobs, and so I, you know, I, I was uh, I worked at Yellowstone National Park. Um, for a while, and I uh, was a ping pong instructor briefly, but uh, the supply exceeded the demand in that case, and uh, I uh, took a job bartending and uh, did did some traveling around the world, funded by freelance writing, and so yeah, I just I I didn't feel like anything was really latching on to me, and I'd sort of dabble in one thing or another, um, but I was really interested in um, the little worlds that I would go into each of these. Subcultures. I was a also was a door to door vacuum salesman, which is an anecdote I recount in the book, and uh, that sort of taught me I wasn't good at sales. Um, I only sold two vacuums, and one was to my parents, uh, <laughs> which was very kind of them. Um, but each of these little worlds I'd go into, I was always amazed. Like, wow, and this is you know from the outside, I might have thought this was uh, you know a, a job that one might think was weird or laugh at or sort of trivial. But inside each of these things, you know. There are artisans of the door-to-door vacuum salesman's world. Hmm. You ended up, uh, at some point, finding yourself intrigued by the idea of, of, of talking to people who really loved their work. And, uh, and you also were interested, beyond that, in, 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 in trying to learn lessons from people who were really good at some of these interesting jobs. Uh, as though the excellence of others uh, could be a, a lesson for the rest of us. That's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, and that was, I guess, the how I came up with the premise was this feeling of, okay, you know, I, especially in my generation, in my mid-30s, you grow up and it was this expectation that, okay, not only are you supposed to have a good job and know what it is early, uh, you're supposed to be good at that job, you're supposed to love that job, and ergo that job is going to make you happy. And this is it's not uh it's not even a goal sometimes it's an expectation i think we have 
And so, uh, you know, it's just like, okay, find your calling and you'll be happy. But I just was looking around me and, you know, a lot of my friends are, they're still trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. And, and, you know, they're asking a lot of the same questions. And so it occurred to me that in some of these experiences, either when I was writing profiles for the New York Times Magazine, I would often pick people who were really good, unusual stuff, or in my own job experience, that the people who were in these sort of, you know, you could say sort of fringe jobs, but these these jobs you would never just uh, stumble into, you know, you wouldn't, guidance counselor wouldn't tell you to do one of these jobs, that people who are really good at them seem to have this passion that was um, you know, above and beyond what you would normally expect, probably because they have to, you know, if you're going to be a mushroom hunter, like one of the guys in the book, you know, you're not, you're not going to get a lot of people who, when you tell them what you do, are going to know what you do, or are going to give you sort of societal, the, the credence to that, you know, there's not the associations there are with a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. So you have to really be invested in it yourself. And that's what led me off on this, this search to find people like this, the idea being, you know, I hoped, or I, my theory being that if you were really good at something and it was something very unusual and you were passionate about it, that that would probably be the, you know, the closest manifestation of this you know, the, the idea of a calling in today's you know, very secularized uh, society. Mm-hmm. You know, as as someone who uh, I actually juggle three jobs, all of which I love, and uh, and most of the time I would do all three of the jobs for free. I mean, if such a thing were, in fact, sometimes I feel like I should be paying somebody else. I mean, for the enjoyment that I derive from mm-hmm. from what I do. But in your book, you remind us that that such a notion. Uh, farther back in history was was all but unknown that for much of our history work has uh, been regarded as a burden some demeaning necessity in life not necessarily something from which people would derive meaning uh, that's something I hadn't stopped to consider before that that now we live in a world where it's possible to think about our work in those kind of terms yeah, that was that was it was sort of interesting going back and looking at the attitudes because, I mean, in the uh, in the time of the Greeks and Romans, uh, the the greatest ideal was to not work at all and be engaged in enlightenment, you know, and, and making your making the best of your mind, and that uh, you know the the closest word the Greeks had to it uh, translated as pain, and in, in the Latin it meant sorrow, and, and so it wasn't until you had uh, Martin Luther coming along and uh and he sort of gave it this religious religious uh valuation of, of work as a calling and then that eventually became uh you know, sort of built upon by Benjamin Franklin the idea that for the American colonists uh okay not only was were you honoring God by doing this work but uh you were honoring God by making lots of money and it was sort of as this you know a very American idea that okay not only was your work a, a sort of this holy duty, but uh, it was your duty to make a lot of money, and so that's sort of on through the years has become this idea of a calling. Where you know by the 1900s we had the 1909 was the first guidance counselor in the United States, and that was this idea of okay, not only uh, am I working as a calling and am I working to make money, but now I'm working to be happy, and that was sort of a, a sea change there, where you know, especially in the U.S. our our economy was at the point where some people could afford to have that decision. Okay, I'm not just going to do what my dad did. I'm not just going to do the job that I can get or that my class system allows me to get. I'm going to do what I want to do. And now we've taken that, of course, to the extreme of, you know, you type in 
uh, you know, how do I find my, my dream job on Google? And you'll get, you know, millions of results and, and everyone's espousing like the seven step way to get your dream job. And, and I thought that was interesting because the idea of a dream job intrinsically is different for every person. I mean, my right. dream job is, you know, just by definition is probably different than almost anyone else's because I have different likes and dislikes. So the idea that anything is considered a, quote, dream job, that struck me as a little bit false. <laughs> well, you end up exploring uh, the, the stories of, of 10 different people, 10 very different jobs, and each one of them, as you say, it's, it's kind of like its own, own little world, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and each one sort of carries with it its, its own sort of lessons. One of them that I thought was particularly interesting was Don LaFontaine, <laughs> who uh, is a, a voiceover person and a very, very successful one, but someone who's all but invisible, uh, even though he's uh, in the middle of the, of the entertainment world. But that's such an intriguing thing to think about, of, of being part of something really exciting, uh, albeit in, in a somewhat sort of anonymous way. Kind of gives us uh, a, a different view of, of, of what it means to be special. Yeah, and Don, uh, obviously, for those who, who haven't, uh, haven't picked up the book, he's, uh, he's sort of, they, they call him, the voice of God, and he's the sort of the birther of these trailer, trailers that you see in uh, movie theaters, you know, where you have someone say, in a world before time, in a land before law, and he's got that great deep voice, and he's been doing this for 40 years, and he's done over 3,500 trailers, and uh, so much so that the industry, everyone else you hear tries to sound like Don LaFontaine now, and he records these out of his house and. Los Angeles um, using a DSL line, and they'll call in a script, and and Donald, you know, put on his headphones, and he'll do one take, and you know, maybe he's talking about a new movie or a new TV show, and and he'll say, "Take it bigger, Don," and say, "Okay, it takes a little bigger, eh, a little slower at the end, oh, a little slower at the end," and uh, and then boom, in you know, five minutes he's done, and he's made a chunk of money, and he's on to the next one. Um, and so, like you said, one of the things that was interesting to me was this idea of this guy is famous. You would know his voice in an instant. When he first called me, I was, you know, I played the voicemail for my friends and, and for my uh, girlfriend, who's now my wife. Um, I was just so excited because here's this guy and he's on my phone. And, uh, and so uh, you have this voice that's so, uh, so famous, but he himself is rather anonymous. No one recognizes him. He's, he doesn't look like what you'd expect him to look. He's, you know, rather small man, and, uh, and so he's sort of, you know, he's not recognized um, for his craft to the extent that someone would ever recognize him, and also, you know, he's basically talking emphatically for a living, so it's not considered an art by most people, so he's sort of in that, you know, that middle gray area of, like, how do I justify what it is I do? It makes me fabulously wealthy. I'm the best at the world in it. But, you know, some people might say, okay, you just read lines for TV shows. And so one of the things he said to me was he said, Chris, you know, I think this is sort of silly. But I could tell, you know, there was sort of a, I didn't really quite believe him because you couldn't do something that well for that many years and really think it was silly. Right. Yeah, and by the end, I think one of the things is he saw it as, okay, and this is one of the things he said to me, Chris, is there's one person out there who really wants to see this movie, maybe a bad, you know, reality TV program on Fox that I might think is bad, but there's someone out there who really wants to see this, and I'm speaking to that person, and I'm making their life better if they see this show. 
And he, in that way, he said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm helping people, and I have this gift, this voice, and I'm giving, I'm giving it to them. You uh, mentioned him kind of being in, in kind of a gray area. It reminds me of a Richard Florida quote from the introduction to your book. I've inter- interviewed Richard Florida before oh, really? about uh, his book, The Rise of the Creative oh, yeah. Class. But you quote him saying, everything interesting happens at the margins. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, and Mr. Uh, LaFontaine would be uh, one very good example of that. A real inspiring story is that of Doug Blevins, who is uh, someone who, uh, at first glance, we could never imagine being out on a football field, uh, really in any capacity, and yet there he has been, uh, earning an an amazing amount of of success uh, coaching place kickers. Yeah, Doug, I think, of just pure (coughs) inspirational stories. And the book is is a mix, because I, you know, I... I wasn't going to try to find people specifically whose stories would inspire other people. I just wanted to find interesting stories and figure people could could take from them different things. But it, definitely, Doug was the one who, in the end, it, you know, you want to you want to go <laughs> try, you know try to run a marathon or something when you're when you're done talking to this guy. He uh, born with cerebral palsy, never walked, um, but from the time he was a kid, uh, has just been absolutely devoted to the idea that he was going to be an NFL kicking coach. Actually, originally just said he wanted to be in the NFL as a coach of some sort. Um, so he latched onto the idea at a young age that he needed a niche in the NFL if he was going to get there. So he chose place kicking, a field goal kicking and punting. And he started writing away to NFL coaches. He would watch tape. He would volunteer for high school teams, junior college, anyone who would take him. And he'd go around in his wheelchair, you know, shagging the football, doing whatever it was, and just soaking it up. Um, and as with anything, if you are really devoted to it and you spend a lot of time, and, and that time is not wasted like I have to work from 8 to 5 today, it's like I want to go voluntarily follow around these place kickers, he became very well-versed in this. Um, to the point where people started asking uh, him to do one-on-one coaching for their high school kid who they hoped could play in college, something like that. And from there, ended up getting an a assistant coach at a, a college position and, and on and on until he ended up working for the Miami Dolphins, the New York Jets. He worked with Adam Vinatieri, who's obviously kicked the uh, game winners for the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And the guy is now one of two or three best kicking coaches in the world. And, um, and just his, his feeling about this is that you know everyone always told him what to do, but he wasn't going to listen to it. Because in his mind, the only thing that could make him happy was to be a coach. And it had to be in the NFL. And so he figured, okay, even if that maybe isn't that plausible, that's what is going to give my life meaning. So I'm going to try to do that. And if I fail, well, then I fail. Hmm. You know, I appreciated the story you tell right at the top of that chapter where, as we can well imagine, someone from Hollywood approaches Doug Blevins with the idea that let's make a... TV movie of the week about your inspirational life, and he had a little interest in it. I mean, if such a film would be made, he would want that film to be about football and about the craft of place kicking and the kind of work which he does. And of course, your your typical blue suit from Hollywood uh, just wouldn't 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 see that. But one hopes that someday this this story maybe can be shared in a way that, that does justice to the work that he does and why he loves the work so much. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, as, as you say, that's, uh, his response was to curse them out, basically, 
because he felt like, okay, if you want to make a movie about you know me trying myself to sleep and overcoming the odds and sort of that disnified idea, you're diminishing the fact that I'm very good at this skill and that that he thinks that is what's interesting. And you know, if he starts allowing himself to say, okay, I'm good for a guy with cerebral palsy, then he feels like that's the first step to me not succeeding. If I ever allow myself to think, okay, I'm succeeding despite this handicap, which, by the way, he calls the Cadillac of handicaps, and hmm. he tries to, in every possible way, pretend it doesn't exist. One of the things that happened when I was with him is we almost got, he almost instigated a bar fight from his wheelchair. <laughs> um, and he's like, Chris, are you going to have my back? And I was like, Doug, what are we doing? You know, But uh, he just... He just goes through saying, okay, if I ignore that I have this to the best of my ability, then I'm not going to dwell on it or you know, self-pity. So the idea of the defining TV movie about him being Doug Blevins crying himself to sleep, he just he was really pissed off about mm. that idea. Understandably so. Yeah. We have just a couple of minutes left, but we, we need to touch on the tenth and final uh, story in your book. It's sort of the title track of the album, so to speak, <laughs> where you do speak to a butterfly hunter, someone who, when you first contacted him, uh, lived and worked right up the road from us uh, in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and uh, literally a butterfly hunter who's uh, uh, encountered all kinds of uh, creepy crawlies along the way. What a fascinating life for him. Yeah, Phil DeVries and this guy, he's just in tune with the natural world and with himself. And, uh, you know, when I, when I first contacted him, he'd been off in this long, as he called it, steep in the jungle. Um, he's an entomologist, and he spent probably two-thirds of his, his waking hours the last 30 years in, uh, in one jungle or another uh, chasing butterflies, and, and he doesn't collect them like people who collect them and put pins through them. He feels that's uh, wrong and gauche and all these other moral reasons, but he uh, classifies them and he uses them for biodiversity studies, and he will set traps and measure how many butterflies come through an area in a certain time and then release them, etc. Um, but he has just grown up, and, it, and he is, just loves bugs. And so if, you're, if I was talking with him and we were eating dinner, he might bolt up in the middle of dinner, run across the, the restaurant. If you saw an interesting bug on the wall, and check it out. And he'd sort of explain, look at this, look at the way, you know. <laughs> and uh, I like you say, uh, to dine with DeVries on a warm summer night on a back porch when the air is thick with fireflies and moths and uncountable other flying creatures is to die alone. <laughs> <laughs> dine alone, yes. Dine alone, yes. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, though, as we learn about him and all these other fascinating people and the work they love so much, and especially his story in some ways, do you ever wonder about any of these people maybe being what we call workaholics and maybe deriving too much meaning or too much pleasure from their work? Or by and large, didn't you see too much of that? It's interesting. One of the guys in Chapter 4, John Narrick, who's this model train guru, that's a definitely a question I touched on with him and that, you know, what I ended up feeling is I tried to put together in, in Chapter 1 a list of some of the sort of field observations, like what themes could I draw from these people, these unusual lives, what could I pull together. And one of the things I noticed is that this is idea I sensed among them that you sort of have to figure out what balance of work, uh, what balance works for you. And each person has a different combination. I mean, LaFontaine, for example, was his most unhappy he ever was at the point when he was at his career apex. He was making a lot of money. He was early 80s and 
and he was really hitting, but he was working these long hours, and his marriage had fallen apart. And for him, the work alone wasn't enough. And so in that case, you know, his, you know, if he was, you could call him a workaholic at the time, it was a negative thing, and he's now created a balance, and he sounds like he's much happier, and the work alone couldn't do it. But then for some of these other people, that ratio is much higher. Maybe it can be 80% work and 20% for the rest of your life, and that made them happy. You know, it seemed like as long as each person figured out what it was worked for them, they had to have that self-awareness of, okay, I can't just work all the time and ignore my family. That's not going to work for me. Or with Phil DeVries, the butterfly hunter, he married another, <laughs> another entomologist. So when they talk, they talk about bugs. And that was his way of saying, okay, I have this overriding you know, just passion for my work, so I'm going to marry someone who has the same passion. Ergo, I will be able to have this you know, family relationship, but it's still going to revolve around bugs and in his case also jazz music that's hmm. his second love so that was that was interesting to me to find okay there isn't like okay i need to set aside this amount of time for my family maybe not necessarily so for some of these people as long as they found a way to do it interesting there's so much that's interesting in this book it's again called the butterfly hunter adventures of people who found their true calling way off the beaten path published by broadway books the author chris Ballard. Chris Ballard, I really enjoyed the book, and I'm glad we could talk about it today on the morning show. Best wishes to you. Thanks a lot, Greg.